All right, good morning, everybody. We have quite an uh, active ministry uh, week ahead of us. I'll start off with uh, today, after second service, we'll be having our baptism out at Masingo, along with Grace Calvary Chapel. They'll be meeting us up here with their taco truck, so join us for that. Um, and then a little bit of worship and a little bit of teaching on how to be saved. Uh, we'll do the Romans Road and then uh, off to the beach to get baptized and spend the rest of the day out there if you'd like and enjoy the sun. It is coming out, we think, around 12, we hope. So that's happening today. Also, camp week begins this uh, Wednesday. This Wednesday, there'll be no service here at the church. Our service will be out there at the camp. Join us if you'd like or take a week off. It's up to you. It's usually the kids' first teaching, um, and we do it around a campfire with some tug-of-war and things like that to get their, uh, their camp started right. So that'll, that'll start. Please pray for that this week, that kids' camp goes well. Um, once we get through uh, this afternoon and, the, and all the logistics associated with that, we get geared up for camp and get everything packed up and take it all out to the Mazingo camp and um, counselors are getting ready, cabins will be prepared, and it's just, there's a lot that goes on. So uh, strength uh, is required by the Holy Spirit, so we need that. So please pray for us. Um, and for those of you who are uh, participating in the camp this year and have, uh, have offered to help, I know that Rod has some packets for you. He's going to try to catch you as he sees you. Um, if you see him before he sees you, maybe wait in line so that he can get that packed to you. So you know, we were hoping to have a meeting today, but then the baptism, we just have a lot going on. So this is it. Um, and, and he'll give you that packet and talk to you a little bit about your assignments and so on. So please see him if you, if you, if you can before you leave today. Several other things, but I don't know that we have time for all that. Uh, worship, you have that worship night that's coming up. That'll be September 2nd at 7 p.m. We got a month before we got to think about that, but that's coming. Um, anything else on the horizon? Okay, great. This morning we're going to be in Psalm 51, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Psalm 51, as we work our way through the Psalms, this is a, an amazing uh, coincidence that uh, we would be reading about David's repentance as we get ready for our baptism today. God just has a way of doing that. So I'm asked, how does the Holy Spirit work? How do you hear from the Holy Spirit? How do you know God's talking to you? It's moments like these. I mean, we've been marching through Psalms for months, almost a year now practically, and we're just working our way through the Psalms, and it happens that we fall on this prayer of repentance um, on the day that we do our baptism out of Mazingo. And that's just the way the Lord works. He's very natural in His supernatural activity, you know. Um, it's hard to go through Psalm 51 without hitting 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. So I do have to give you some background story on that. Before we get started, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning and the opportunity to study it, to spend time in it, to let it teach us, and to let it judge us, um, to let your word do what it does best, to conform us into your image, to give us a better understanding of who you are. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and guide this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. David writes about a specific situation, but in the psalm doesn't necessarily mention what it is. And so as we read his heartfelt asking uh, for forgiveness, uh, for a right relationship with God to be restored to him, we have to understand where he's coming from. And that story's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It begins there anyway. It says that, it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. 
But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send Uriah, or send me Uriah the Hittite, back from battle. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go or let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him and made him drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came, they came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent to David, told the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matter of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath arises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would, sh they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of um, Jer Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died um, in, Th in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us, came out to us in the field, and we drove them as far back as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. 
And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. If you don't know who Nathan is, he's the prophet of the time. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like, it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. That's our background. That's our background. So David, feeling the conviction, has changed his tune a little bit. And you'll notice that with David. At the beginning of David's life, he always wanted justice. If you read his Psalms and you read stories about him and things, I want justice. I want... And even in that story there, Justice needs to happen. He was a righteous man in that sense, in the sense that I don't like to see anything wrong. Sometimes we get stirred up that way. We get upset when we say, see, injustice is taking place. We're like, that's not right. You know, we want justice. And we do. And it's a right thing to want to want justice. It's a righteous anger, you know. But in this particular story that Nathan was giving him, he was like, are you, are you just as excited about justice when it applies to your life? See, sin looks different on other people. My sin looks horrible on you. On me, well, there's extenuating circumstances for my sin. Certain things came into play. Certain people said certain things. I was in a different place. My emotions were in this. There's a lot of justification that I can come up with for my sin. But when it comes to you, <laughs> justice. I demand justice. Well, when David's confronted with his own sin from Nathan, a good friend, a good friend who's always been faithful to David in the past, but is also faithful even in this, this is love. What Nathan does for David here is love. Not that Nathan had a choice. He's a prophet of God. If God tells you to go, you go. You don't get to sit back and say, maybe, or let me think it through, or is this mission optional? Nathan was a man after God's own heart and had to do what God told him to do. Nathan wasn't perfect either, but in this situation, he obeyed the Lord and told his friend exactly what he needed to hear. He needed to be confronted. It's you, David. You're the man. How many wives did David have? Not that that's okay, but he certainly had a large flock to choose from. And instead of that, bored not where he was supposed to be, at home, the king should have been in the field. Uriah, a man full of integrity, who would not go down, that was convicting to David. Whether it's mentioned here in Scripture or not, it had to have been. How could I possibly go lay with my wife and be comfortable and sleep in my own bed and eat with this wonderful food gift that you gave me to go have you know, strawberries and champagne with my wife while my guys are out in tents? 
How could I do this thing? And David's got to feel that conviction. How could I be here? Why am I here? As a, as a man who usually leads the fight, he was where he shouldn't have been. Or maybe a better way to put it, he was supposed to be someplace else. Sometimes we find ourselves in our walk with the Lord in places we shouldn't be. You know, and that's certainly the case here. But there's other times where God's called us to be someplace and we didn't go. That's our role. That's our responsibility. That's what we're called to do. And we just didn't answer the call. That's where David finds himself. And so the conviction from Nathan comes. He feels it. Not only has he committed adultery with this woman, thinking it was a great time to do that with her. If he didn't catch the scripture, she was just cleansed from her impurity, which means she had just gotten over with her monthly cycle. This is the best time if you're a family planner, a natural family planner. There's no way. This is the first week. Have at it. It didn't work out that way. And here comes a baby. Didn't expect that. Thought this would all be hidden. Just a a one-night stand. But it didn't turn into that. It turned into something far, far more intense. Sin does that. Just a little bit of sin. Satan just needs a little bit of foothold in your life. Just a little bit. Just take this one step towards. I'll take care of the rest. David finds himself in a horrible place. A horrible place. That is if you're trying to cover your sin, which is what he tries to do. And he takes his best friend or his leader, one of his leaders anyway, and brings him home from the battle and tries to get him so that there's some confusion about maybe who the father is. He'll never know. We're off a couple weeks, nine months. Eh. He'll get it. And he'll think it's his. That didn't work out because he had too much integrity to go lie with his wife. It just got worse and worse. But instead of David owning up to it, he decided to kill the man instead. Make her a widower or a widow and uh, take her for himself. And so he does, does that. But nothing escapes the eye of the Lord. He's there for all of that. And so he sends Nathan to bring conviction. And I think it hit. You're the man. David was broken. The rest of this chapter reads, Nathan also leaves with some comforting words. The Lord's forgiven you. He's received this repentance that you have. I think that's the most important part. You can't bring someone to a place of condemnation. You have to bring them to a place of conviction. Because conviction leads someone to cry out, what now? What should I do? And then God is able to answer that saying, I know that you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but here I am to make up the difference. I'm here to pay the penalty for your sins. I'm here to forgive you of your sins if you'll receive it from me. If you can be humble enough to admit You're the man. David was. He admits it. So in his older age, as he loved justice earlier, he asked for mercy in this chapter. And when you recognize the sin in your own life, mercy is all you can hope in. And as you get older in the Lord, you realize you need a whole lot more mercy. And so does David. He says in verse 1 of Psalm 51, our text today, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The first two verses, he acknowledges that he's a sinner and that he needs the forgiveness from God. And that's your first step too and my first step. 
we need to ask. We need to say it out loud. We need to confess to the Lord. We need to acknowledge our sin in our lives. It doesn't do any good to have Jesus in your back pocket if you've never applied the blood of Jesus Christ to the sin of your life, if you're still carrying that with you. He wants us to ask for mercy, to receive it, and to understand it's undeserved. That it's just given, that it's available, not according to my worthiness, David says, but according to your loving kindness. I just trust in you, and I, won't, I don't want just mercies. I want tender mercies. You know, imagine confessing your sin to a brother or sister in the Lord or an enemy. It doesn't make any difference. Just another human being. I think the, the reason we don't do that more often and talk to people directly is because we're afraid of what their face is going to show. You know, that's a common thing that's going around, you know, oh, I didn't say it out loud, but you could see it on my face, couldn't you? And that's the case, the disappointment, the hurt, the struggle that they have to give you that forgiveness. That's hard to watch, you know. Um, They need to be given that opportunity, though, and you're the one to give them that opportunity to be forgivers. We are forgiven of our sins. That's what we're reading today, and that's what the baptism is all about today is to receive that forgiveness, but that should prepare us then to be forgivers of others. You know, we're called to that. And so oftentimes we're given that opportunity. You've been forgiven much. Can you forgive little? Well, that has to start with asking God for your forgiveness. had a person once tell me that, no, you don't need to ask God for forgiveness. Once you're saved, you never have to ask for that again. Well, I understand what the person was getting at, that the blood of Jesus covers over all of our sins, past, present, and future. But we see here David, a man after God's own heart, who's been walking with him all of his life, is still asking for mercy, still acknowledging his sin before God, not brushing it under the rug, not saying, well, uh, just put that in the bank, apply it to my account. There's more to it than that. There needs to be a broken and contrite heart about all of our sins. We don't have to feel condemnation, but we certainly should feel conviction. That's okay. Please wash me thoroughly from my sin and cleanse me from my sin. Only God can do that. David acknowledges not only does the mercy come from God and their tender mercies, but that he can cleanse us from the sin. He can wash us clean. Verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. We find a lot of that today, people saying that this isn't sin and that is not sin. David, if he was to say that about this situation, would make God a liar, and it still works that way today. When we say that something that God says is sin, and we respond with, no, it's not, then we're calling God a liar. It isn't okay. Um, Some of the tougher subjects that come up in our society today where most of Christianity has accepted certain sins that were abominations in Scripture are now no longer abominations but accepted practices. That's the same as calling God a liar. It's, It's not just about that sin. It's about something far greater. There's a, there's a lack of respect. I find it interesting, and, and, and this isn't against or meaning to bring up anything other than the fact that oftentimes Paul 
likens our relationship to Christ like a marriage. And we're the bride. And I think we need to remember that. That we're the bride. We're the helpmeet in this relationship with Jesus Christ. We come alongside him. He's the king. He's in charge. He's Lord. It's not a partnership. It's not 50-50. And I think when you see churches get to that place where they begin to usurp the authority of Jesus in their lives and the authority of Scripture in their lives, they begin to usurp the authority of their husband. That's why we're warned so many times in Scripture, it's not about women's rights. It's about the church having a right relationship with Jesus Christ, our husband. And for us to understand what that looks like. And we can see the church being in rebellion against their husband. David says, no. Against you and you only have I sinned. I've done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. You're right. I'm wrong. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desired truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. I was born this way. There's two worldviews. There's a secular humanist view that believes that essentially all men and women are good. And we have a sin problem. And the scripture teaches us otherwise. We have a sin nature. And that's our default And it's only through Christ that we become better or conformed into his image. The two different ways to look at things, and this is the biblical way. This is what the word says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I've always been this way. It's always been there. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. That's what you want. And that's why he says earlier, you will do those things. You're going to cleanse me from sin from within. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That's what David's feeling. The Holy Spirit hasn't been taken from David, although it was taken from Saul, and David witnessed that. David's the second king of Israel. The first king was Saul, and Saul had the Holy Spirit come upon him. But when Saul was rebellious against God, the Holy Spirit was removed and found his place in David. David's not so foolish as to think that it can't happen to him. He understands his sin is the same as Saul's. The difference between Saul and David isn't sinlessness Or a person who's got a better heart for God, it's someone who knows how to repent. One of the greatest things we can teach our kids is how to repent, and they need to see it in us first. They're always being told that they're doing things wrong, and they're always being told that they need to make amends. And that's fine, and that's that's essential, and that's important in parenting. But we also have to show them when we're wrong, we say it out loud, and then we make amends. But they see it's not just for them. It's not just because they're younger. They, they can't wait to get older so they don't have to repent anymore. You know, we have to teach them that this is an ongoing process and this never ends. And we're never always right. Purge me with hyssop is an interesting word. The hyssop is a, a small little shrub that grows out of walls. It's in Exodus 12, 22. 
Numbers 19.6, Leviticus 14, John 19.29. It's all used. It's always representative of Jesus' blood. Whether that's in uh, Exodus when they apply the blood to the doorposts of their, of their homes, that's done with hyssop branches and so on. And all those texts, it shows us that. So when David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, he knows that God can do that. Purging is interesting. I used to do an object lesson with the kids, and you get a glass of water filled with red food dye, so it would be all red. And you take a gigantic pitcher of fresh, clean water, and you begin pouring it into that cup and letting it overflow. And, of course, it makes a mess, and the kids are all like, it's making a mess, and they just love it. But as you continue to pour, it gets pink, pink, almost clear, and then finally clear by the time you're done. As you pour that water into that cup, it purges all of that red out, gets rid of all of that, and all of a sudden you've got a clean glass of water, which is what Christ wants to do for us. I want to conform you into my image. Let me pour into your life and continually pour until all that sin is flushed out, until all the attributes of you and your flesh are removed and only the attributes of me remain. It's a wonderful lesson. Now, I didn't have to do it for you, but you'll have that image in your mind, and you'll be thinking, every time you read that word, purge, you'll be like, I remember that object lesson, and I never even had to do it. Never had to make a mess. It's a great word picture. You're right. David wants that purging to take place. That's a question we all have to ask. Do we want that? How much salvation do we want? It's a silly question, right? But I want to just avoid hell and then be able to live however I want to live. But I want to be purged. Because all the decisions I made up until this point, uh, to me, on my knees, broken before the Lord, asking for forgiveness for my sins, all those decisions were of my mind and of my heart. And if I'm asking him to forgive me for all those past mistakes, and then ask me to start with a clean slate, and I begin writing on that slate again, I'm asking for it. See, I want God to purge me. I don't want to make those choices anymore and those decisions anymore. I want to pray about things. I want to seek the Lord's mind on it. I want him to give me a new mind, a new heart, his mind, his heart on issues. I want to see the world like he sees it. I want to live the way I was intended to live in a close, tight relationship with him. I want to be purged. I want to be washed. I want to be whiter than snow. I want to hear joy and gladness in my life again. It's hard to minister to people that don't know they need to be ministered to. You know? It's hard to tell people about Jesus who don't understand they need Jesus. All they have is judgment. All they do is sit back and see if what's being said is, you know, I'm not so sure. You know? Can't help those folks. Those folks aren't there yet. But when all you have is sorrow and grief from your sin in your life, and you're in a place where I need help, I don't know where else to go. I've tried all the programs, all the books, all the things. I don't know what else to do, you know? Then you cry out to Christ. Then Christ can minister to you. That's where David is. I want to hear joy and gladness in me. The bones that you've broken, I need to have that rejoicing again. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. I want to be back to that place where we were, that tight relationship when I would throw rocks at animals that were attacking my sheep. And when it was between me and Goliath, you know. I want that relationship. Then I want you, verse 10, to create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I want a clean heart. I want to have a steadfast walk with you. I don't want to be moved by the things that I see. I don't want to be moved by the Bathshebas in my life and the things that are distracting me from my relationship with you. Cast me not away from your presence. I don't know that God was going to do that, but David wants to make sure. Please don't let me, you know. Please don't cast me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me like you did with Saul. Saul wouldn't have had that happen to him if he had repented, but he, instead of repenting, came up with an excuse. He justified his sin. And that's where God couldn't help him. Unless we call it sin, we can't do anything about it. He can't do anything about it. We've got to lay it before him. Verse 12. Restore to, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. He's talking about testifying. You do this for me, I'll never stop talking about you again. It's, it's a... He doesn't even need to make that promise. It just happens. When someone is born again and they've accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior and they feel that weight removed from their lives, the shackles have come off, you know, the handcuffs are off, the the bondage, they've been released from it. And the guilt and the shame is taken off their shoulders. They can't but tell everybody about who did that for them and why. They have full of joy now. How come you're so joyful? Didn't this just happen to you? Yes, but, you know. He says, would you do this? And I will teach sinners your ways. I'll bring them to you. and They'll be converted. They'll come to you. Our testimonies are very, very powerful. I don't care what your testimony. Maybe you weren't this giant drug addict, you know, that, you know, maybe you didn't have that horrible story. Maybe you did, but we need to hear more about your story and what God's done for you. But not everybody has that background. We have a much more difficult background, I think. I think when you see someone, we all know as a society, a good society, a moral society, we all know what rock bottom looks like. We can all point to it. We could all name it. When we say rock bottom, we know what that looks like. But I run into people every day that don't look like that, that are at rock bottom. They're people that go around and are philanthropic in their attitudes and in their, in their practices. They're part of this club or they're a part of that club and they do this good and they do that good and they're kind to their neighbor and they help people out and they do all these things, but they have no interest in Jesus Christ, no interest in getting delivered from their sins that they have. Those are the most difficult people to minister to. How do you minister to someone that doesn't think that they have the kind of sin that Jesus needs to touch? Jesus needs to touch those kind of people, they would say, but I'm not those kind of people. I'm this kind of person. Those people, whether they're the rock bottom folks over there that we know what that looks like, or you're the Midwesterner who's just always known Jesus or always been churched, people need to hear your testimony of how you got born again. I was that person. That's why I'm standing here today. I grew up in church. I was told what was right and wrong. I lived my life pretty much that way. Did normal teenage stuff. Oh, I hear that a lot. They're just being a teenager. No, they're sinning. It's sin. It's not okay. I did all that stuff. And I got delivered. 
I was born again. David says, you do this and I'm going to tell everybody about you and what you've done for me. I'm going to write a psalm about it. Well, here he is. You, know, you only write a psalm about things after they've happened. And that's what he's doing here. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. I can't believe I killed Uriah. Deliver me from that. So much guilt. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And so he writes this song. Verse 16. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These are God you will not despise. Several times in Scripture, God calls out the nation of Israel who would go through the rituals of animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. They would bring their bulls, they would bring their goats, but with no remorse and no repentance. And God says, I don't want that anymore. I'm tired of it. You think that's what I want? I don't want your blood. I don't want any of that stuff. I want obedience. (laughs) I'd far rather you just be obedient than sin and say I can cover it with some blood later on. There's no brokenness. There's no contrite heart. And that is the danger of coming to know Jesus Christ or believing on salvation without repentance. There has to be repentance. You have to acknowledge your sin before God, but then you don't go live in it. You acknowledge it before God and you walk the other direction. You turn around, it's 180 degree away from your sin and towards God. That's what a relationship with Jesus is supposed to look like. I'm turning my back on the world and the sin that I've, uh, I've done and created and continue to do. And I'm, I'm facing God and I'm going to walk with him. That means I'm going to do what he does. He's the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to follow him and do his thing. I'm going to learn what it means to be a son of God by watching and walking with Jesus. I know that you want a broken and contrite heart. These are the things you're looking for. I could bring bulls and goats. As a king, I could bring all the bulls and goats you wanted, but I'm not going to even bring one. Because I know you want this, you want this, this broken heart instead. Verse 18, do good. In your, due, in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. It's a whole different thing when you bring an offering to God, not because of your sin, but because you're in love with him and have a relationship with him. God's always wanted that. He says, build Now that I've broken myself before you, now that I've asked for forgiveness, now that I've asked you to purge me, you've you've cleared the building site. You've got it all level. You've removed all the debris and the rubble. But we don't want to leave it blank. We don't want a lot. We want a temple. So begin to build in my life. That's the next step for a believer. As you accept and own your sins, you confess them before the Lord, You bring your broken and contrite heart before God, asking for forgiveness, asking for mercy, testifying of what he's done for you. Now, God, begin to build in my life. Lay those foundational stones so they're good and solid, so that no matter what comes against me, and there will be things that come against us, wind and waves and things, I'm built upon a rock that can withstand the storms of life because it isn't whether the storms are going to come, it's when. When the storms come, my building is stable. My walk with you is stable. That's what he's asking for. I want a good, solid walk with you, Lord. Build. 
And we need that this morning. And that's where we close. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for David's heart. The ability not only to have this quiet conversation with you, but for him to make it public. To be a living testimony of what you can do for a broken man. Is saving so many people. Not many of us have fallen into the sins that David just confessed to. But if we have, we know they can be forgiven. That there isn't a sin that's outside of the reach of your mercy. We can't exhaust your grace. There's too much. So we come to you this morning with confession on our lips and in our hearts. And we beg you, God, please show mercy in our lives. Forgive us for our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord. That's our heart. That's our desire. That's what we want. We want to be purged of all the old us. We want to be filled with that new you. Have a new mind, the mind of Christ, a new heart, a soft one, a tender one, an obedient one. We want to be changed and transformed. We want to be conformed in the image of your son. We want to look just like Jesus. Would you do that in our lives? Lord, we repent, we turn from our sins, and we turn towards you. We walk with you now the rest of our lives. Thank you for David's heart. Thank you for him being so transparent and writing something like this. I pray that we would be the same way. We'd be that transparent with those around us that we would testify of the wonderful things you've done for us and are doing with us. Lord, bless these folks as they go today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week, and hopefully we'll see you out at Mazingo. It'd be great.